Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for Do the Hebrew Prophet Speak to You with Rabbi Barbara Simons. I also want to thank Temple Emanuel in Denver for co-hosting today's event with us. Rabbi Barbara A.B. Simons graduated from the University of Michigan and was ordained by Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 1994. Since 2006, she has been serving Temple David in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh, where I am today. She is thrilled to have even a small part in raising up prophetic voices through the many diverse voices included in her book, Prophetic Voices, Renewing and Reimagining Haftorah. Um, Without further ado, we'll pass it over to you, Rabbi. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here. And no one less than the uh, director of the CCR Press is with us. So Raphael Chaikin, who made this all happen. Thank you for being here. When do we meet the Hebrew prophets? And largely, as we know, within Judaism, it is from the Haftarah. Haftarah does not mean prophets. Haftarah actually means conclusion or dismissal. So some people think the word Torah and Haftarah are from the same uh, same root, especially if you pronounce Haftarah, right? Uh, so they aren't, they're completely different. And so this idea that the Haftarah reading is a section from prophets that comes after the Torah reading and basically toward the dismissal of the service, right? You might have a sermon after, but you have Elenu, you have Kaddish, and you're, you're basically done. And so um, as we uh, jump in, and I'm just seeing people in the waiting room, so I didn't know if we wanted to let them in as well, sorry. <laughs> um, that 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 the Haftra uh, is is the way that we meet the prophets largely, um, and it's interesting because the way we actually first know that is from nowhere else than Luke. Luke is not in the old in what we would call the old in what Christians would call the Old Testament. Luke is in the New Testament, but in Luke twenty four twenty seven, in case you are interested, uh, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He, meaning Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So beginning with Moses, meaning Torah and the prophets. So interesting in terms of how do we date the beginning of hearing the prophets as the beginning of, you know, at the beginning of early worship. It's actually through that. So we hear the prophets that way. We hear the prophets through sermons. But even if we are at services every single week, and how many of us really are, and even if we are really listening closely, how much can we understand what is being said? So part of the challenge is that the Haftra is often chanted in Hebrew. So if we don't have the understanding, we miss out. It is sometimes translated, at least the translation is there for you, but it's taken out of context, right? So it is not where we are fully understanding um, necessarily what is being said. Um, and also there are times when it is just hard to hear what's being said. So there's a challenge with the way the prophets get our attention. And we're going to talk about more of, you know, what it what would be a job description of a prophet, right? What, what would a prophet be doing? But 
here's an example, right? So um, Dr. Roberta Weems, um, sorry, Renita Weems, excuse me, um, talks about the the failure of metaphor in the Hebrew prophets. Um, and she she talks about how poets, how prophets were poets, and so they get people's attention. But sometimes it's just really difficult. So here's an example. If you go to Hosea 2, verses 4 and following, um, this is God being married to the Jewish people. So the Jewish people is the wife. Remonstrate your mother, remonstrate her. For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. And let her put away her whoredom from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Else will I strip her naked and leave her as on the day she was born. Later, I will also disown her children, for they are now a whore's brood. One problem here is imagine that 13-year-old B'nai Mitzvah who's getting up there and saying these words, thinking, oh my gosh, right, that that's an embarrassing kind of thing to say to have this kind of language. But the other is what Dr. Weems writes uh, is that um, that the difficulty is that, um, sorry, just finding this, that, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, why should I as a reader leave the world where I presently live, where violence against wives is unjustifiable, to inhabit a world where violence against wives is taken for granted? The marriage metaphor is useless therefore, for shedding light on the theological question of punishment and judgment. So if we think about why aren't we hearing the the Hebrew prophets, part of it is we have to show up to the synagogue largely, unless you're taking a course on Isaiah or on Amos or on Micah, but we have to show up, which already narrows a lot of us down, and then we have to uh, be able to connect in to what is being said. And if not, it becomes irrelevant. And in fact, what happens in a lot of liberal congregations now is they don't have the haftarah at all. They skip it. And so if you skip it, you really can't hear the prophets at all. And and that becomes an increased challenge in that one of the, I don't know, one of the accolades of Judaism is calling it prophetic Judaism. But if we're not just using that as kind of an empty title, then Prophetic Judaism means we have to start with the prophets. So let's think about this, right? Why did the rabbis in the early centuries decide to add something to these services, right? So we know that the first uh, Beite Knesset were, were houses of gathering and they would read Torah. When they add, Why did they add something in, right? Why make Kiddush a few minutes later than it was going to already be? So probably, right, they wanted to complement the Torah reading with the Haftarah reading, whether it's going to um, further elucidate it or maybe be a challenge to it in some way. Maybe they wanted to uh, give a different message. And often the prophet's message is um, petitions for divine redemption and restoration of the Jewish people to their land, to the temple and to sovereignty, or maybe it was just an increase in Jewish literacy. Hey, you know what? We got all these people gathered. Let's get them as many texts as we can possibly get them. So Haftarah evolved, 
right? So, so though it started as we heard in Jesus's time, so so very early in the first century, it didn't just take off like that. So at first there was uh, a cycle or a few readings around Passover. And then it got to be a little bit more, some more holidays and more holidays. And finally, every single Shabbat, right, every single Sabbath and every single holiday would had a, have a haftra, a reading from the prophets that went along with it. That all was going along relatively smoothly. The Sparty community, right, the, the, the community that came out of Spain and North Africa and sort of up and around with Italy and so forth, um, has somewhat of a different cycle, but not tremendously different. Um, but then along came Reform Judaism, us radical folks. And so it uh, at first in Hamburg in the 1840s, it was changing where they eliminated Haftra outright. Then there were certain Haftra in, included and so forth. So, so while it's interesting to me to hear the evolution, the point being that the cycle of Haftra was not given by God on Mount Sinai. It was created by the rabbis and there was fluctuation over time, whether by where you lived or by what your belief system was around it or how it played into the service. So again, the, the hard part is if we're not hearing the prophets, how can we possibly go out and be able to have prophetic Judaism? So who were they? So there are 48 male and seven female Hebrew prophets. Um, they are not all Jewish, by the way, but in the in the uh, in the Hebrew Bible, there are a total of fifty-five. However, it's thought to be that there are something like six hundred thousand, six hundred thousand prophets um, uh, per rabbinic tradition. With the idea being that they were prophets only for their own generation. So they didn't really count as it were in the bigger picture of this. So we're really talking about this narrower field. And if we think about the Hebrew Bible, we're going to even narrow it more, right? Because if we think of our greatest prophet, right? Think of how the whole Torah ends at the end of Deuteronomy. Never again did there arise a prophet like Moses, right? Um, that Moses was a prophet, but Moses was in the Torah. And all of the Haftarah readings come from prophets. So we have uh, prophets who show up in the Torah that we are not going to be hearing from as part of the Haftarah cycle. So if we look at a list, and you can go to Jewish Virtual Library as one of your sources if you wanted to, to get this list. Um, we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Pinchas. I'm not going to list all of them, but all of the ones I just listed, they are in the Torah. They are not in the prophet section, right? Um, so, so some of them we are not going to come across in that way, right? Um, we have other ones that are questionable. Daniel. Why isn't Daniel a prophet? Daniel's writings show up in, in the writing section in Ketuvim. Does that matter to us? Well, again, the idea of his not being in the prophets is that his writings include visions of the future, uh, which were believed to be true, but his mission was not that of a prophet. 
His visions of the future were never intended to be proclaimed to the people. They were designed to be written down for future generations. So there are people that are prophet-like, but aren't actually finding their way into the Nevi'im section. So when we think about uh, the, the prophets, overall, we think of basically two sections of prophets within the book of Nevi'im. One is the earlier ones in Hebrew, Nevi'im Rishonim. Um, and so they are um, describing the transition from a loose tribal confederation to a monarchy under Saul and David, and then into the two kingdoms after Solomon. And they eventually get up to the Assyrian Empire in 722 and the end of the southern kingdom of Judah, right? So we are hearing about that and about the Babylonian Empire, which eventually will destroy the temple in 586 and call the, cause the, ex, the exile. Um, the later prophets, called literary prophets, um, are really related to uh um, their interaction with the political leaders of Israel. So one of the great examples is if you wanted to go to 2 Samuel and you would read about King David and Nathan, Natan in Hebrew, the prophet, right? So the whole story with David and Bathsheba is, is just a great example of speaking truth to power. So as we're, we're headed toward getting to, so, so what do the prophets do? Here's an example. So David is hanging out on his rooftop. His troops have gone off to fight war. He stayed behind. He doesn't always stay behind, right? He stayed behind. And lo and behold, there is Bathsheba taking a bath on her rooftop. I don't know about you. If I were going to take a bath, I don't think I would be on my rooftop unless I had the highest roof of any. Um, but anyway, there she was. And so he saw her. He wanted her. He took her. She got pregnant. He gets her husband back from war, Uriah, who doesn't want to go home. He, His troops are in the field. He doesn't want to be able to enjoy the luxuries of life, of, of home, including being with his wife. And so uh, David sends him out, has the troops fall back, and he is killed. Uriah is killed, but Sheva moves into the palace. Their child is born, um, but is deathly ill and dies. And so while we could read more of this story, Nathan comes to talk to him. So the question is, if you're a prophet, you're called by God, that's first and foremost. So job description is you have to be called by God. You can't self-proclaim as a prophet. But you're called by God. Um, his, you know, his position was pretty safe. But how do you get the king to hear you? Well, I don't know about you, but I find that storytelling is really very engaging. And I can sometimes hear stories better than someone sort of yelling at me or repeating themselves over and over, whatever it might be. So the story tells is there was this, there was this guy who was very, very wealthy and lots of flocks and sheep. And so and there's this other guy who had this one, this one sheep that, you know, this one lamb that, that was just part of his family slept in the same bed. And this wealthy man was, was going to be entertaining a lot of people. So he took the single lamb of this poor man and he slaughtered it and he fed it to the people. Well, Nathan tells this story to King David. King David is, is incensed. How could he do that? That's wrong. I'm going to bring him to justice and all of that. 
And Nathan simply says, that's you, right? That's you, right? Here, here, you know, you can have anyone, right? You can't have a married woman, but you you can have anyone as a wife, more or less, so to speak. Um, and, and you took the one wife of this man, Orion, and then you had to kill, but he didn't have to say all that, right? So it's just a really good example of when we're speaking truth to power, what works, right? What is the what is the impact? So so when we think about um, what makes a prophet, uh, again, first and foremost, it is that God has called them to be a prophet. So how do you know that? If you go into the prophet section, you basically look at chapter one, verse one of all the prophets. Sometimes it's slightly later. You're going to hear the call by God, um, and then, frankly, you're going to hear the reluctance by the prophet to say. I'm not worthy or I can't go or and even if you think about Moses, right? Moses is called by God at the burning bush and Moses comes up with fabulous different excuses of why he can't do it, right? But so if you think about um being called, right, some kind of go and do statement, right? And then reluctance. If you think about Jonah, right? Jonah like runs in the other direction, right? He tries to sail away from God. Um so there's it's common, right? And and why are they, why is that common? They understand their task. They have very difficult tasks. So we can understand the reluctance of it. Um, and they are recognizing the skill set that they need to be very good communicators. So that's that's really important when we transition into, so what is the job description? So a spokesperson for God, um, and and well spoken, right? If you can't get the message across, this this doesn't work. It doesn't help you. So one way that uh, that we hear the prophet's voice is that sometimes they start with a message of doom and end with a message of hope and redemption. And in fact, when these subsections of the prophets are chosen for the haftra. That's what happens always, right? It's a it's a message of doom. I shouldn't say always, usually message of doom. And then it ends with hope. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who wrote the book on the prophets, because he wrote a book called The Prophets, um, wrote that uh, the prophet's task is to convey a divine view. Yet as a person, he is a point of view. He walks the walk. He talks the talk, right? We all know. Now, when we say to someone, don't do as I do, do as I say, that's not really good role modeling. So if you're able to really be, if you're living the life, that's when God is going to pick you, right? On rare occasion, you're chosen from, from the womb, so to speak, to, to be a prophet. But really, it is, you're already living the life. We often think of a prophet as seeing the future, um, so yes and no, right? So it's not where they're predicting things, you know, like like what's the what's the lottery number that's coming up, right? Or more important things, right? Um, it's more likely that they are predicting what's going to happen, that they're they're just very in tune with what's already happening. So here's an example, right? If you are in the the lower part of the land of Israel in Judah. And already the northern part, um, Israel, has been taken over, right, by the Assyrians and no longer does it exist. Then if you are in the southern kingdom of Judah, you as a prophet are saying, this is going to happen to you too, right? 
they get it. They know what's happening. And one of the challenges, it might be a challenge for us now to think about, but is that the belief is that God caused it, right? It's it's not where the Assyrians or later the Babylonians or the Romans were the ones who had the power to destroy Israel. The belief system in this, and this is a whole big theological discussion that is not really for our time here, but the belief was that God felt the Israelites were sinning and so allowed these other nations to be the victor. Right. So so for us, sometimes we can have a challenge with that. Is that is that blaming the victim? Right. In in, in modern parlance, what what is that? But I think that it's important to think about going back to do they predict the future? Not so much. Right. A little bit. But if you had a pie chart of what their job description is, that's going to be a very limited amount of what they do. They are to role model right? Role model holiness and scholarship and closeness to God, set the standards for the whole community. Um, and, and the whole idea is that he is, he or she, are saying no to their society, right? They're condemning habits and assumptions and complacency and, and all of that, right? Um, while reconciling people with God. So, one of the things about how they use their words, how they speak, right, um, going back to this idea of the story, is that they are concerned not necessarily always with facts, but with the meaning of facts. So just to give a quick example, right, um, Isaiah 55, 12, yea, you shall leave the Babylonian exile in joy, and we're going to talk about Babylonian exile in Isaiah in a few minutes, and be led home secure. Before you, mount and hill shall shout aloud, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. He is not actually thinking that the mountains are going to be shouting and that the trees are going to be clapping their hands. But he's using language, right, in order to capture people's attention. So reading the prophets and seeing the remarkable way that language is used is really something that's interesting. Um, in the presence of God, the prophet takes the side of the people. In the presence of the people, the prophet takes the side of God. Um, and so there are so many different things that the prophet is to do, right? To hold the kings in check. We talked about that already with the David and Nathan story. Um, a voice that God has lent to the silent agony, right? So for those who just have no voice, the prophet is going to bring forward that voice. Uh, and, and so we might also use that term to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So let's just set a scene. It's Yom Kippur morning. It's uh, We're already fasting. We skip breakfast if we're healthy enough to fast. We're getting toward lunch. And there we have the Haftarah portion, right? So Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and this is the passage the rabbis brilliantly chose. Isaiah 58, 5. A day for men, as written, a day for men to starve their bodies. Is it bowing the head like a bulrush and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Do you call that a fast? A day when Adonai is favorable? No, this is the fast I desire, to unlock fetters of wickedness and untie the cords of lawlessness to let the oppressed go free, 
to break off every yoke. It is to share your bread with the hungry and to take the wretched poor into your home. When you see the naked to clothe him and not to ignore your own kin. And it goes on, right? So there we are. We're feeling it, right? We are we are fasting. We are feeling what he's saying. But if we're fasting, then we're just going about our regular day. That's that's not what this is about, right? Even if it's, you know, even if we're spending hours at synagogue, uh, you know, on Yom Kippur, but we haven't really recognized what ways that we are afflicting people by by withholding wages, by how we treat people and so forth. They can't just be surface level. Empty rituals and the profits do not go together, even in modern times. But on the other side is when we think about Tisha B'Av, which just passed, of course, the commemoration of destruction of the first and second temples, um, we have from Isaiah 40, comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and declare to her that her term of service is over, that her iniquity is expiated, for she has received at the hand of Adonai double for all her sins. So again, when uh, when with the people takes the side of God, when with God takes the side of the people, I mean, the people were just so suffering, trying to allow for them to be comforted, right, to find some words of comfort. So I do want to get into some text. I just want to say a, a word about why Jews believe that prophecy stopped. So one suggestion is that it was a punishment for sin. So that uh, that already Amos had predicted the cessation of prophecy um, when uh, when it won't be happening anymore because there was a lack of fidelity to the Torah, as Radak uh, um, interprets it, um, which results in the loss of prophecy. Another is that with the destruction of the temple, that and that's when prophecy stopped right before the second temple right was was fully destroyed that the absence of god's presence ultimately contributed to the disappearance of prophecy so on the one hand we believe that god is everywhere but on the other hand when there's sort of a focal point to it when there's no longer that focal point no longer is there prophecy either another one that i think is just very interesting is the idea of metaphysical transition so the idea that Prophecy ceased in the time of Alexander the Great. Um, based on rabbinic chronology, the Greek Empire began immediately following the end of the biblical period. So this time frame would synchronize with Malachi. He's the last of the prophets, right? So there, there's a transition to an age of reason right then. So if you're in an age of reason, there's not they're not hearing the prophets, right? They're not able to listen to the prophets. So are there modern prophets, one might ask. Dr. Stephen Toole, who I invite you to look up, he's a professor recently retired of Hebrew and Old Testament at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, right near Alex and I, um, which uh, T-U-E-L-L, by the way, uh, is asked, was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. a prophet? And, you know, part of his answer was he doesn't speak in, Martin Luther King doesn't speak in the first person, Um but, but while he does certainly uh, advocate for justice, at the same time, I'll add in, uh, you know, there were moral issues with him, um, but also uh, this idea that 
um, as uh, as as uh, Dr. Toole says, that Dr. King was a prophetic witness. I love that language. Prophetic witness to his own time and to ours. So I invite you to look at the blessing before the Haftra is said. It links us um, from revelation of Torah for your servant Moses, for your people Israel, and for the prophets of truth and righteousness. So we're linked back to Sinai, so it gives it some, you know, yechis there. Um, and also the idea that the rabbis saw themselves as sort of the next line to prophets. So there's sort of a continuum that goes uh, on that way. So so what do we do with, with all this? So this week's Torah portion is Akev. And while a Torah portion is always very important, when you're talking about the Haftra at this time of year, it's not quite as important because the we're in a Haftra cycle that is focusing on what uh, around Tisha B'Av. So there are Haftra, three of them preceding Tisha B'Av and seven of them after, and we're in that period of time. So while the Torah portion is always Akev, it's always um, the same Torah portion, which, by the way, is Deuteronomy 7, 12 through eleven twenty five. the Haftra, which is Isaiah 49, 14 to 51, 3, is, is not necessarily connected directly to the Torah portion. So if I can be kind of um, neat and clean about this, I'm going to hope for my best on, on doing this. I would want to screen share and show you that this is what uh, where the portion starts. So when we look at um, a 49.14, Zion says, God has forsaken me, my sovereign has forgotten me. So here is Isaiah preaching to people who have lived in Babylonian exile for decades. And they just think that, that God has left them, right? I mean, such despair, right? When we actually stop to look at just the language, right? And then goes on in his method of getting people's attention, in this case, is not a story, um, but using metaphors. So look at what he does here. Can a woman forget her baby or disown the child of her womb? So on the one hand, the answer is, it's, rhetor it's a rhetorical question. No, right? No, it doesn't work that way, right? No. But the point is driven home because then Isaiah says, though she might forget, I could never forget you. So even if a mother possibly could forget, right, her baby, um, God could never forget us. So it, it makes a really strong point when we pause to really look at it. And then, by the way, we're going to come back to it a bit, but I just have to go to the next verse because it's just so interesting. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. It's really interesting because I picture something between a tattoo and henna. Um, but imagine that, right? This all metaphoric. We don't think God has hands. But imagine that idea, especially given what you say about tattoos, that God carries with God's self an image of the walls of, of Israel, of Jerusalem right? Wow, right? Always there, right? Always available, right? Right before God. So it's really powerful when we look at this text and we hear, okay, wait a minute. This is when Isaiah was actually speaking to people who are in exile. We are reading this. 
having just gotten through Tishabab, which by the way, is not only remembering the destruction of the first temple, but also of the second temple as well. And we have this real powerful kind of language. So I'd like to look at what, what do we do with this? So what we're going to do with this is I would like to um, go to the book I edited, Prophetic Voices, Renewing and Reimagining Haftarah, and take what Rabbi Audrey Karadkin does with this. Because we might be sitting there, Jews do, sitting there, maybe now we understand a little bit more, and I, I read to you all of two verses, but we might say, oh, okay, you know what, that's interesting, it's powerful language, but what do I do with that, right? What do I do when I leave synagogue and I take this forward? So, so she points out about um, there, it's using the unbreakable bond between mother and child as the core metaphor. And she goes on. She says, as the poem opens, it is this maternal manifest manifestation of Israel's God who comes to comfort the collective Zion as she laments that the eternal Adonai has forsaken me from Isaiah. That's a quote from Isaiah. Zion is reminded that Adonai is only one aspect of God. Can a mother forget her babe, different translation, or stop loving the child of her womb, she is asked. The phrase stop loving is rendered as merachem and from the same root as rechem, the womb itself. So it's tied in together. So, I mean, grammar is a beautiful thing, right? So now we get a little bit of an extra of, oh, wait, when we look at it in Hebrew, there are real layers to what this is saying. So what does she do with this? She, she goes on and she says, the future of Zion's children is repeatedly assured. And the Haftra's final section reminds us that this future is promised eternally by the mother of them all. Look back to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. And this phrase comes from the end of the Haftarah portion. Pass from the secure embrace of one mother, Sarah, to another, the Shekhinah, God's feminine presence. Zion will always be God's beloved. So we end on this note of, you know what? It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. So when we hear the idea of prophetic Judaism, sometimes we think it refers specifically to social justice kind of work. And it does, right? Speaking for those who have no voice, right? Speaking truth to power. But there are also other aspects of a prophetic voice, right? So when we hear the blessing after the uh, Torah portion, and Raphael can speak to this well, I really felt strongly that the Hebrew words that are really giving us the um, the the uh, the invitation to understand the prophets are through which we we broadly translate it, but. If we think about prophetic Judaism, we're now going through using these four words into spirituality, self-care and concern for others, and social justice. The prophets are not only about social justice. And this is an example when, you know what, when you really feel abandoned, as, as Isaiah was feeling as the people were feeling as we feel at times as individuals as a nation wherever that the prophets have something to say to us right however for some people it just it just doesn't speak to us it's just too it's too distant from us so 
in this book are two alternative haftarot. So again, haftarot does not mean prophets. So it, it means conclusion. So if we use as our conclusionary reading, or even we take it out of the context of services, and we study it at an interfaith gathering or on a march, or we study it at a you know at a board meeting, we bring it forward or whatever context we want to look at it. So listen to this this uh, offering. So Rabbi Dina Feingold offers the words of Rabbi Regina Jonas. So she was the first ordained female rabbi ever, though not by a seminary because of German Jewry's. Let's just go with internal politics. Um, but she uh, she writes this, uh, Rabbi uh, Jonas. Our Jewish people was planted by God into history as a blessed nation. She's writing this from a concentration camp. Blessed by God means to offer, offer blessings, loving kindness, and loyalty, regardless of place and situation. Wow. Right? So if we're trying to understand, or if we're trying to connect with our own experience of feeling exiled, whether physically or otherwise, then we have the words directly from her. Some of her uh, sermon notes were somehow salvaged. And so we have her words. So Rabbi Feingold um, says this about, uh, about I didn't read all of it, but about uh, Rabbi Jonas's words. Um, uh, these are taken from notes for a sermon delivered in Terrazin. Even in the midst of a hopeless situation, where any reward for following God's commandments must have seemed remote, Jonas encouraged her followers to lead a life devoted to the mitzvot. The reward of a mitzvah is a recognition of the great deed by God. That's Rabbi Jonas's words. In a time where little consolation was to be found, Rabbi Jonas continued to find the strength and the words to comfort her people. She died in Auschwitz in 1944. And then Rabbi Feingold asks us the question, how will you provide strength and comfort to others when you are suffering yourself? Very powerful, right? Because we know if we think of Viktor Frankl, right, also who had been in the camps, a psychologist, that when we help others, we feel better. So it's really a powerful thing. So I, I want to do a I have five minutes before we want to open questions. I can't wait to hear questions and so forth. But I, I wanted to bring forward a taste of what can happen, right? When we bring forward a contemporary interpretations with calls to action. Sometimes the calls to action in this book are a question, as we heard. Sometimes they're more subtle, as we heard. Sometimes they're a direct go out and do this thing. Um, but but the idea being that prophetic Judaism is, is Judaism of action. Whether it is spirituality with a connection to God, whether it's self-care and concern for others, or whether it is social justice. So we cannot go on without mentioning that one of the one of the 179 contributors spanning the diversity of Judaism is Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, who participated um, in, in uh, giving um and giving uh, interpretations for two Torah portions, Toldot and Vayelech. But here's what I want to do with this. He actually is a text. So his voice was used as one of the alternatives. 
So I just want to say this really quick, that Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I spoke of before, who, who wrote the prophets, the book, the prophets, um, he talks about how we don't need textbooks, but we need text people. So this is a perfect example of Rabbi Shmuley being a text person. So he brings forward um, a text of his words in terms of um, uh, giving um, for Passover. So we're in the middle of Passover for giving a text. And I just want to open the book really quick and be able to give you some of this. So here it is. So a, a, just a, a trigger warning because he is talking about suicide. One, this is Rabbi Shmuley's uh, words. One person dies every 40 seconds. Risk factors may include family history of mental illness and or suicide, feelings of hopelessness and history of clinical depression. While these factors alone do not predispose an individual to suicide, others cannot be seen. For example, chemical changes in the brain, especially decreased levels of the neurotransmitter serotonin. And he, and he goes on and he talks about if you need help, here's how you get help. And so cancer Karen Weber, who chose Rabbi Chmuley's piece, talks about, given we're in the middle of Passover, she starts this way. It's all the brokenness we don't see that worries me, right? And uh, and and so she brings forward his words in order to say, we have these symbols on the Seder plate. We tell these stories, but basically we have to open up our eyes to be able to see brokenness, right? That we're just we're just not noticing, right? So I, she brings the whole idea of freedom from narrow places or the exodus through a whole different lens by using his words. That's what this book can do. So I, I will not call him a prophet, um, but I, for all the alternative readings, I do call them prophet-like, that they are calling us to action so that we can reclaim this tradition of prophetic Judaism. So I will pause here so we can see what questions we have. Thank you so much, Rabbi Simons. Yes, um, as you mentioned, we'd love to open it up to questions. If anyone would like to ask a question or make a comment, please feel free to raise your hands and unmute. Hi, Michael. Yes, I had heard the uh, that the Haftorah was developed during a time when the Torah was outlawed. Reading the Torah weekly was outlawed. And I wonder whether that's valid or or you think that's uh, that's bogus? I had heard that too, and so I will I will keep the professor nameless, who I timidly asked that question of because he was a scholar in this. And we often connected to the Hanukkah story, right? Where it was um, Antiochus Epiphanes by punishment of death, you can't study Torah, and so they went to the prophets, and then it sort of stuck. It seems to be a tale. So it does not seem to be the case that that is where this came from, but it's certainly an engaging tale. You know, if I, if you don't mind my saying, and I don't want to use my time on stories, but um, I, I love the idea that because the students wanted to study, but they pretended they weren't by playing games, whereas our students are trying to sometimes play games and then pretend they're studying and it goes the other way. But apparently it is a mess. Hi, Aglaia. Hi. Okay. So I don't know if this question has been answered, um, like anywhere, like elsewhere, or if you've already addressed it or anything like that. And 
But um, all right, so I was in a lecture on Nusar one time, and I'm not a prophet, so like, but we were one of the exercises was to pick areas where we're strong and areas where we are really deficient and everything. Now, the area that I picked that I was strong was actually foresight, but and then the one community building because my happy place is as far away from people as possible. So I'm definitely not a prophet. However, though, I was kind of wondering about that though, like um, the connection between Haftarat and um, um, Musar and prophets in Musar, if anyone knows anything. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I can't say I'm a scholar on this. I will say one of the things that's interesting is that there is Musar in the book is alternative Haftarot, which, which makes sense to me, right? If we're doing this inward work and right, and then it and then at some point it's going to sort of come out, you know, and, and change how we interface with the world. I think that's really powerful. Um, but the study of Musar, right, hadn't happened um, at the time that the Haftro were first put into the cycle and so forth. I think we trace it, if I'm right, to Bache, even Pakuda around the 11th century. I can be corrected on that. Um, but but I do think it's a really interesting point in terms of um, when we are trying to make inner and outer change right what what are the what are the texts that help us what are the practices that help us by the way in terms of sort of being a reluctant pro prophet there are there are people who who ran away i don't know if you heard that part but you know think of jonah and jonah was as as actually i think it's rabbi shmuley who taught this a, a couple of years ago on yom kippur and it stayed with me um, you know, he was the most effective prophet, like five words he got, not only all of the people of a major city to repent and put on sackcloth and ashes, but also the animals too. go figure. And at that point, he had said to me, this is not when you know a teaching has stuck with you, that um, if he wanted to take any prophet out to coffee, he'd take Jonah out. And I'm with him on that. I would like to come to that coffee too. So, but thank you. Very interesting to think about the interplay. Thank you. Hi, Stuart. Yes, thank you. I'd like to address the issue of separating true from false prophecy because I've always found it vexing. You know, I've read the verses in Deuteronomy or the verses in Jeremiah that address that issue, but it seems to be the way it plays out. And, you know, if prophets are addressing, you know, events, you know, in, in, the, in the future, like how is the current generation supposed to decide who's a true prophet and who's a false prophet, if it all depends on how it plays out. It's very hard because it even says at one point, I don't have the text directly in front of me, that even if there, what, what comes out is, is right, right? I, I mean, what they predict happens, even so they can be a false prophet and then we're sort of nowhere, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna say I don't know that I can answer it except to say you know sort of sheepishly well good thing we don't have prophets anymore so we don't have to fully worry about this but but I will say th something is really interesting to me is if you go to Numbers eleven verse twenty six uh, to twenty nine um, Eldad and Medad Eldad and Medad are these people who are prophesying in the camp and this young guy most you know sort of tells on to Moses, right? He, he's, he's like the, 
whatever, right? He he goes in and reports, oh my gosh, right? They're speaking the prophecy. And and Moses says, bring them on, right? Let let more people be doing that. But that's really interesting, right? Which which is also not the traditional God calling the prophets, right? And yet somehow, and they use the actual word, right, for prophesying, um, the more the merrier, right? But it, it also goes back to that um, explanation I had at the beginning of the idea that there were 600,000, I mean, that's always a good number in Judaism, right? but 600,000 uh, prophets. But if they were only speaking to that generation, or like Daniel, they were only writing it down for future generations, it, it didn't count, right? They have to be speaking to that generation and beyond. So I didn't really answer your question, but it's a, it's a great question because I think it's a really hard text. To figure to figure out what what we're being taught, I did see Rafa. Oh, sorry, Steve, go ahead. Thank you very much, uh, Rabbi. Uh, I I have to commend you on your presentation. You have a very very great subtle sense of humor, and it really made me listen to a subject that uh, I was not attuned to at all. I have two questions, neither of which is directly related to the topic. One. Is a phrase you use, divine revelation, early on uh, in your presentation. And the second was, I think, make the, unaf- make the unafflicted less comfortable. And so I'll start with the second. Why, why would you ever want to make the unafflicted less comfortable? I, I think of myself as kind of borderline unafflicted, and I don't want to be less comfortable. And two, what is divine revelation and how will we know when it's happening? Yeah, so I'm not sure like which is the easier question here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with with the afflict. So afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted um was not is not a phrase that I invented, of course, but 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 it's sort of like the bumper sticker sticker phrase. So so go back to the Isaiah text in Yom Kippur, because I just think it's a good example of it. If we are sitting there and fasting and thinking, oh, I'm doing Yom Kippur right, so to speak, right? Um, and I'm fasting and whatever I might be doing, but not really changing our inner selves or not really changing how we are treating others around us, then it, it doesn't count. The fasting doesn't count. So when the prophets elsewhere say to the, the Israelites, just stop offering the sacrifices, they don't mean that. They don't mean stop offering the sacrifices. They mean stop offering the sacrifices at an empty ritual. So we have that problem too. We can be very thankful we don't have that sacrifices, but we have that same idea, right? Where where there are times where we do these rituals and it's just it's just not meaningful. At some point, we're going to stop doing them. They're just like even all of Haftarah, right? A lot of congregations aren't hearing it. Um, if it's not if it's not meaningful, we 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 tend to use our time in better ways, as it were, right? But but the idea is if you are comfortable, but as sometimes social justice folks say, nothing's keep you up at night. You're not worried about you name your issue, right? I don't want to get I don't want to get like too political here, but if you're not worried about global warming or about how many people are going to starve because the grain can't get out of you out of Ukraine, or you're not worried about, I could go on, um, right? Then then the idea of the prophets is to call you to action and say, hey, no, you you do have to worry about these things and you have to get involved. So that's one. Divine revelation, right? So um 
that could be another topic for someone else. Um, but the idea being that, you know, depending on what you what one believes happened on Mount Sinai, frankly, if anything, but if but if God spoke all of the Hebrew Bible to Moses who wrote it down or including the Talmud in some way, or is it only the Ten Commandments, right? There's a whole midrash about this. There's only the first of the Ten Commandments, only the first words, only first letter, which by the way is an olive, so it's silent. What happened there? Um, but if we trace this, um, the, the sorry, if you, we trace the sacred text back to Sinai, it gives it more um, uh, value usually. So I will say this, I believe that sacred text is sacred in part because it has been transmitted for 4,000 years in one, you know, orally first, but 4,000 years down to us that, that that idea of it being sacred makes me uh makes makes me feel connected into that link in the chain of tradition. So whatever one believes about, you know, how um how literal was revelation, um, one could also look at it in terms of how sacred is our history. I'll try to squeeze in uh two more questions. I saw Stuart first and then Aglaya. Or real quick, I'd like to read this the issue of who is a prophet, for example, characters since you started by citing the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth for the Christian or uh, Muhammad for the Muslim. I mean, uh, is our position that since prophecy ended in the Second Temple era, that neither Jesus nor Muhammad are true prophets? Or do we accept the fact that perhaps you know, Jesus is a prophet to the Gentiles and, and uh, Muhammad a prophet to the Arabs? I am only talking about Hebrew prophets. So we do not consider either them prophets, right? Of course, other religions can consider them prophets. And of course, um, Christians consider the Hebrew prophets prophets and, and use it. I didn't bring that into this, but in, in worship cycles, bring forward the Hebrew prophets. And one of the things I realized is that my Christian colleagues know the Hebrew prophets so much better, frankly, than I do, that that seems kind of, let's just go with unfortunate, that it was one of the impetus for, for going down this route to be more literate myself about the Hebrew prophets. Thanks, Aglaia. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, but um, the number 600,000, um, doesn't it refer to the number of Jewish souls? And so if it does, then are the rabbis saying that every Jew is a prophet? Yeah, no, they're tying it into how many left Egypt and that if there were that many who left Egypt that that, you know, there are that many. Right. So they, I I don't focus so much on the number because I think, you know, sometimes like I tell my students, if I'm asking for a number, always guess I have a number for the Hebrew Bible, always guess 40 because you're most likely right. Just go with 40. Um, so I think that it's not exactly the number. It's just the the massiveness of how many um, prophets they say there are. But again, they're making the point of so they're they're just calling them prophets, but they're not they're not making it into Nevi'im, right? Because they're only for a given generation. Um, but it is interesting, right? There are texts, there are people today who will say that there are modern day Jewish prophets, which is an interesting question to think about, right? Do you believe that? And, and what does it take to be a, a prophet? For me, you know, if we if we stay with the Hebrew Bible, you know, the first thing is a call by God. So can I really self-proclaim to be a prophet? 
I I don't mean me, but can one. I would I personally I, I'd be a little hesitant on that one to say, oh, somebody decided that they're a prophet. But what people can do in the world, right? And like be a prophetic witness, as Dr. Toole said about Martin Luther King. I love that kind of language. And in terms of the variety of of um of uh Alternative texts that came in, by the way, from everything from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Karl Marx. I always say that Karl Marx is the most uh, controversial, and I think that Groucho Marx might have been less controversial. Um, but but Maimonides and Hillel and Shammai and just uh, and and Job and all of these voices, right, come forward. I don't call any of them prophets, but prophet-like. Um, and so I think that they are calling us to action, and the interpretations help us hear that message. Thank you so much. I think that that's all the time that we have for today, but thank you so much, Rabbi Simons, for joining us and for, for, for your presentation and for the learning. I also want to thank all of you for tuning in and for engaging with us. Um, and just to let you know, we have two great programs coming up next week, so hopefully you can all join us for those as well. In the Phoenix area, um, we will be hearing from Rabbi Ian Pear about Halakha and the Jewish state. Um, that will be on Tuesday, August 8th at 1 p.m. for a lunch and learn, sorry, 1 p.m. Pacific time, uh, lunch and learn at our office. And if you're not in Phoenix, it'll be offered on Zoom as well. So you can still join us for that. And then on Thursday, August 10th at 1 p.m. Pacific, we have Dr. Amy Jill Levine and Dr. Mark Brettler um, for their class, Reading Matthew from the Jewish Perspective. Um, we hope that you can join us for those as well. And thank you again for being here. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.